Our sermon today is taken from John chapter 16, verse 12 to 15. This is the word of God. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare to you. And all that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Let us pray one more time for the preaching of God's word. Father, what a glorious thing it is that we are invited into the life of the triune God that we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, that we have access to the Father, that we have the blood of the Son cleansing us from all of sin, Lord God. (sighs) Remind us of these identities. Remind us of this this truth, that Lord God, if we have received you, we're clean. We have nothing else to prove. We're here because of the light. We're amazed, Lord God. Tis mercy all that you have found us out. Amazing love, how can it be? The Lord my God should die for me. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we are in the farewell discourse. This is chapter 14 to 16 and 17. You include the priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the night before he will be crucified. And he's with the disciples, telling them about what they might expect, instructing them of what they might do, especially as Jesus is about to be crucified and would um, resurrect and would ascend to the right hand of God. And now that Jesus is departing, What should they do? What should they expect? What should they know? And so Jesus goes on this long discourse from chapter 14 to 16, really on abiding in Christ by the Holy Spirit. He talks to us about the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is our helper. The Spirit is our counselor. The Spirit is our comforter. The Spirit is our teacher. And this is the one that Jesus would send after he departs. And amazingly, we've seen over and over again in this text that Jesus says, It is to your advantage that he goes away so that he might dwell within us by the power and person of the Holy Spirit. So we've covered quite a lot of this uh, portion of the text already. So I thought it would be wise for us to just slow down, take these four verses, which is rare for us in CC to just go through four verses. And I think if we just slow down, take a view of the whole, we'll realize and understand um, something about the big scope of the Holy Spirit's work something about why we need him, secondly, where he comes from, and therefore who he gives us access to, and who it is that he glorifies, which is the Son. So that's the, the three things we're going to learn today. Why do we need the Holy Spirit? Where does he come from? And third, who does he glorify? Okay? So first, why do we need the Holy Spirit? And I think this text tells us two fundamental things of why it is that we need the Holy Spirit. So look at verse 12 and 13, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. These two verses tell us something about why it is that we need the spirit. Two things there. Why do we need the Holy Spirit? To guide us into the truth. And second, so that we might bear the truth. To guide us to the truth. Second, so that we might bear the truth. Now, these texts specifically, before it addresses us, addresses the apostles themselves who were there. 
these 11 men who were there, and also, of course, to the other people that would write the scriptures. Jesus is telling them, and the apostles understood themselves to be receiving this message so that they might, they might write eyewitness accounts of what happened about Jesus' life. You see, the only way we can get the significance of Jesus' life, the, the significance of all the events, all the things that he did, is if someone authoritative, which is the Holy Spirit, tells us what it all means. If we were there, for example, and Jesus was simply feeding the crowds, Jesus was healing these people, he resurrected from the dead. How do we know about the significance of these things? How do we know that these things actually took place? How did they take place? How do we know about the meaning of these things? See, it is the Holy Spirit that Jesus says will come upon the apostles, and then through these apostles, we might have access to what it means. So we can have the Gospel of John in our hands today. This is how we know we have. This is how we know the words of Jesus in the upper room in this private meal with the disciples. This is how we know that His resurrection means something for us. So you see, the Spirit, fundamentally, Jesus is saying here, will give the apostles this information, and the apostles will write them down in Scripture so that we might have precisely what God wants us to know about the person and the work of Christ. So the Spirit is the Spirit of truth. We mentioned this last week. The Spirit is the Spirit of truth. The Spirit doesn't cause incoherent babbling. The Spirit, rather, causes intelligible thoughts in our minds and, and causes us to read the Word of God. The Spirit and the Word of God are connected together because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one God. So maybe you've often heard it said, right? People, um, I think in Jakarta especially, often say something like this, you know, you might have the Bible, you might have doctrine, but we have the Holy Spirit. As if the two things are completely separate. You might have knowledge. I have piety. You might have theology, but I have the Holy Spirit. But you see, if the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one God connected together, we cannot separate them. They all go together. So it is the work of the Holy Spirit to actually guide us into the truth, to point us to the words of Scripture, to disclose to us the meaning of the life and the work of Jesus Christ. You can't disconnect them together. And I want us to connect these things in such a way where when we hear about the person and work of the Holy Spirit, we hear and, and think about how we are in love with the Scriptures. We're in love with the communion that we have with Jesus Christ. We, we love Christ. We have access to the Father. We call Him out and we say to Him, You are God and You are the one that I love. You're the one that I desire. Lord, cause me, guide me so that I might know more of your truth, so that I might know who you are, for you are yourself truth. As Paul would later ask Christ. So, right, that immediately runs not only in our Christian circles where we oftentimes pit the Spirit against the Word of God, but we also oftentimes hear it said in the secular world, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. You know, I, uh, I practice meditation. I don't need to go to church I don't really read the Bible, but I have this spiritual undertaking. And so the spiritual realm is kind of um, immanentized, uh, brought together, domesticated in such a way where now the Spirit has just reduced you this almost impersonal, wordless sense of peace that you might have that you would access through, I don't know, yoga, meditation, um, watching TED Talks, it might give you peace, right? And so it's... 
the spiritualistic understanding that reduces the Holy Spirit into a wordless sense of peace that you might have. And so they would say, you know, these are propositions. You're reducing God. If there's, there's such a thing as God, I feel Him in my heart. I don't, I don't need to know Him with my mind, but I feel Him in my heart. Just have that sense of peace and, and that's enough. But you see, the problem with that is that you start to reduce God into something less than a person. If the Spirit of God is not the Spirit of truth, therefore the Spirit of the Logos, the Spirit of the Son, He can't actually contradict you. He can't actually say to you, that's not who I am. See, anytime you have a relationship with any person, whether it be your friend, your spouse especially, or your kids, you encounter things about them and you realize that they're not you, right? You have dinner, you have, you have coffee with people, and then you realize, okay, there are things about this person that are just fundamentally different from me, not just with the kinds of food that they like, habits of the heart, patterns of thinking, worldviews. In other words, when you start to live with this world and you commune with other persons, real people, you encounter truths about them, and you realize that you have to accommodate these things or else you won't, you won't be able to live in peace. And marriage is oftentimes the best example of that because in marriage, you realize that you're two fundamentally very different people, two sinners coming together, realizing all of your differences and saying, I will work together with you even throughout these differences because you're a person. You see, if, if you say, if we say, we're just spiritual, but you know, we don't need to, to read the Bible or do this church thing, how do you know that the spiritual world with which you commune is not just a bigger version of yourself? How do you know you're not just worshiping yourself? We say, you know, if, if I believe in a God and I have a spiritual relationship with Him, you know what? He would never say those things that He says in the Bible. Well, how would you know? How do you know you're not just projecting your own ideals onto a bigger version of yourself, the one that you commune to? Then of course He would never disagree with you. Then of course He would never disagree with you. Because you're not actually worshiping the true God. You're not actually worshiping the spirit of truth. You're not actually in Him. You're not actually with Him. So that's why when we read the Bibles, it's no wonder. It's no wonder we encounter things that are fundamentally disagreeable to us at first. It's no wonder we see things in there and we're like, okay, God, this is who you are. You are different than me. You are truly God. You're, you're so much bigger than me. There are things in there that I don't understand yet. So we need the Holy Spirit to guide us into the truth. Second, however, look at what it says in verse 12, specifically the latter part. He says, I thought many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. You can't bear them. And the word bear there has a connotation of carrying weight, right? You, you, when you're doing a squat, you know, you're bearing weight. And if, you, if the squat's too heavy for you, the weight will crush you. So what Jesus is saying here. The, the, what the Spirit is teaching us is not some generic truths, right? You don't go to the Bible to learn about the laws of physics or whatever other, uh, you know, random facts about the universe or whatever, right? We go to the Bible specifically to learn a particular kind of truth, and it's a kind of truth that is often hard to swallow. So in fact, as we heard last week from Tazar and from the passage before, if you see in verse 8, for example, in, of chapter 16, he says, When he comes, that is the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's a specific truth that the Spirit will guide us into. 
See, it's a specific truth, in other words, that is hard to bear. And what is that truth? It's about our sin. It's about our lack of righteousness. It's about the fact that the world is judged by, by God to have failed His standards. And isn't that true? Isn't that ridiculously hard for us? Utterly impossible for us to bear the weight of that truth. For us to see who we really are by the mirror of the Spirit and say, we have fallen short. Isn't it amazing that, that, that you know, we, I've been reading a lot of articles on, on depression, for example, and all the psychological studies on depression says that a pattern of thinking within depression is what they call labeling. And what labeling does is they start to identify your failures to who you are. So if you're often late to church or you, you messed up in some particular way in your relationship, you don't say, I messed up, distinguishing your act from your identity, but rather you say, I'm just a failure. Instead of saying, I, I lied, you say, I'm a liar. Instead of saying, that person um, uh, um, you know, betrayed me, you say to them, they are a betrayer. Nobody loves me. Nobody wants me. You see, they're labeling these sort of things. And that is true, right? That, that's a particular pattern of thought that we find ourselves thinking about. And they're incredibly depressing. But I want to argue, we actually have the opposite tendency. We actually don't have primarily the tendency to render ourselves guilty. We actually have the tendency towards self-deception so that we might look better than we really are. We want to deny that we're sinners. So instead of admitting that we love to gossip, we say, I'm just warning you about that person. Instead of admitting to say that, you know what, uh, I'm, I'm a liar, you say, no, 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 I just love to please people, you know, I, they can't handle that truth. I, I, gotta, I gotta modify these things, right? Instead of, you know, one singer famously said, you know, he doesn't call himself a fornicator, he just says, I just fall in love way too easily with too many women. Because that sounds so much better than saying, I'm just an adulterer. I'm just a fornicator. And it takes so much courage. In fact, I would argue, biblically speaking, impossible for you to actually own up your sin and confess in such a way where you say, that's who I am. No more hiding. You know, we often heard it said in, in Jakarta circles, right? We want community. Does your church offer community? And I would argue, friends, you don't really want community. We want the comfort of knowing that we have a lot of friends, but we don't want to be in a community because why? Community requires vulnerability. That's what distinguishes true fellowship from being in a club. You go into a club, you play your little chess game, you go home, you don't really talk to them until the next week, you play another chess game or whatever it is you're into. But a fellowship requires you to come out of the dark, to come to the light and say, I had a bad week. I didn't just have a bad week because, you know what, I'm just broken. No, 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 I had a bad week. And it takes so much, so much impossible bearing of the truth, impossible weight of courage to be able to come out and say, I'm not a perfectionist. I'm really, really anxious. I'm an anxious, ridden person and I lose sleep. I can't sleep. It takes a lot of courage to come out and say, I struggle. And to, to be, not only be generic and say, you know what, I struggle with lust, I struggle with pornography. I struggle with pornography. 
And not, and not just say, I struggle with pride. You say, no, no, no. I find myself consciously on social media comparing myself with everyone. And then you say, no, no, no. I, I, just, I, I just really care about my appearance. You, know, you see, it is incredibly difficult, impossibly difficult, to actually bear under that weight of responsibility and come out into the light and say, I am a sinner. I am under the judgment of God. I lack the righteousness that I need. And so marriage takes hard work. Marriage is actually two people forced to come to the light because you live with one another. You realize we are so, so much in the dark. So college roommates fight all the time. You see a little glimpse of that. Because you can't hide anymore. You can't hide all the flaws. This came up in, in a head really, really potently in my own mind um, a few weeks ago when I was in um, Pittsburgh, and I was, I was supposed to give a couple of lectures there at, a, at an institute. And, um, you know, I arrived there from Chicago, and normally what happens in these sort of things are they, they take you to a dinner with the people that would be involved in the, in the lectures tomorrow. So I had dinner with the, the president of the institute and then the, the, the videographer specifically. And um, I remember throughout the dinner, and normally, friends, when, when you have these nerdy theological dinners, right? <laughs> there's, there's some people who just tune out, and I completely get that. And normally, you know, we were self-conscious of our nerdiness, and so we try to shift the conversation to the weather or something, or um, personal relationships, and try to get to real life. And, um, but I, I tried to do that, and I tried to probe into, uh, because she, she just was not talking. And I realized about, you know, 30 minutes into the conversation that there's something going on here. There's something deeper here underneath the silence. She just wasn't talking. There was something in her eyes, and I just felt, you know, there's, there's something going on here. So right after the dinner, I was going home. The, the host uh, family was taking me home, and I just asked Jason, who's, who's the host who took care of me, and, and I just asked him, you know, why was what's going on there? What's the story? And it turns out that been in a... She just got divorced a year ago. She was in an abusive relationship with this husband um, that she got divorced with a year before. And four to five years, she just couldn't go home oftentimes because she would be so psychologically tormented. Now, she, he wasn't verbally, I mean, he wasn't physically abusive. He was verbally abusive, shouting at her, screaming at her, right? She couldn't even go home. And, and for long periods, the husband would have to live with the pastor for long periods of time so that, you know, so simply for the sanity of Jess. And so I'm realizing why she was so quiet because, as Jason told me, as I figured out, she, she felt like her dignity has been robbed. She couldn't feel that she has the right to speak up. She couldn't feel like she went, she could go home as a safe space because as a woman, she, she couldn't feel like she could speak to her husband. And so she won't talk to people. She, she doesn't think that her voice is worth being heard. And I, I swear, I mean, I, the next day I, I gave those lectures and I'm pretty sure I did a terrible job. Because right across the room was just recording me and I just could not focus. Over and over again, I just kept repeating in my mind what just happened to her. And her husband's already married to another woman just a year later. And as, I, as the story further unfolded, throughout the day, right after the lectures, during lunch, I, I just couldn't talk about the lectures that I just had, you know, I couldn't think straight. I just thought, what is going on? And why did it take so long? Five, four to, four to six years. They went back and forth like this. Why? Because 
the husband could not admit that this was an abusive pattern. He could not bring it to light to say, I am abusive. He kept justifying himself and saying, you know, I'm just trying to figure out what, what headship in the house looks like. I'm just, I'm just a broken man. I'm just trying to figure out what this, this being a man of the house looks like. And was just incapable of really calling it for what it is. Abuse. And never did. That's why it took them so long, because they were trying to repair that process. Because you see, reconciliation requires that process of repentance. Where you say, you own up to your dark, and say, I did wrong. I confess my sin. Forgive me. So that there's true reconciliation, that true forgiveness could be given. If not, there would be no reconciliation. You know, this would still feel betrayed and, and the husband is not owning up to it and therefore never really changing because he doesn't see, see this as a, as a behavior that is wrong. Not just a dysfunction. Friends, it is impossible. Do you feel that? Do we feel that? Do you feel yourself justifying yourself? Come into the light. What is it that you are hiding? So the Spirit causes us to bear these things so that we can actually come into the light and say, Lord God, I have nothing to offer you. Let the blood of the Son, Jesus Christ, actually come to me so that I have access to you. But second thing, okay, this sermon's not just doom and gloom, friends, I promise you. Okay, so second thing, where does the Spirit come from? Notice here, in, in so many ways, Jesus says that the Spirit of truth comes and He will not speak on His own authority, Whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. In 15, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. In multiple ways here, Jesus is saying, the Spirit is one with the Father, one with the Son, and speaks out of the Father, speaks out of the Son, and reveals to us who the Father is and what the Son has done. In other words, the Spirit gives us access free access to the knowledge of the Father, communion with the Father. And, and He bestows that to whomever He wills. He has the authority and the ability to disclose to us the things of God, in other words. And that's in the spirit of freedom, He gives this to us, this, this freedom of the knowledge of God. Let me just talk to you about the three sub-points the second point. Where does the Spirit come from? He comes from the Father and the Son. Three implications of this, okay? Three freedoms that we enjoy because we have access to the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit. First, we have freedom because we have the freedom to know God. We have the freedom to know God the Father and not just know Him conceptually. Not just have an exchange of relationship with Him, but to actually be known by Him and to know Him. See, to come into the light means that you're actually owning up. To all of your flaws and saying, Lord God, I want to really know you. No more invulnerability. Soften my heart, Lord, so that I could actually know you in a deep and relational fashion. And that is absolutely mind-boggling and groundbreaking in the context of the second century. In the context of the second century. Because in the context of the second century, friends, you didn't have relationship with your gods. They lived in a polytheistic culture. And religion was simply, you know, there, there were many gods in religion or, or faith in the gods were simply a function of your cultural family identity. And you don't really go to God's communions. First of all, the gods are way too big for you. Who, why would they care about the, the, the business of puny little humans? Or 
the gods would only care about you if you had something off to offer them. In other words, they only had bartering relationships. There's no such talk of confess your sins to the God. Confess your sins in such a way you're really owning up to them and, and coming into the light so that you might meet your God. There's no talk like that. Rather, you came to God for exchanges. You only went to God when you were in trouble. So you, when you wanted to cross the sea, you might traverse the lands and go to Poseidon, right? Or else you just stick with your family gods. Every household had their own little gods, you know, which is the premise of the movie Coco that I just watched last night. Um, uh, you know, you're born into a, 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 um, a Hispanic or Mexican family. You worship your ancestors, which isn't too far away from our Chinese culture here, right? In other words, you're born to this family. Automatically, they just say, well, why, why do we, why do we, why do we go to the ancestors? You're Chinese. <laughs> like, there's no explanation given. This is just what you do. In other words, religious faith becomes just part of and parcel of your ethnic identity, right? It's not a voluntary religion. It's not a voluntary faith. It's not something that is distinguishable from your ethnicity or your race, right? And so in the, in the ancient world, it's no different. You only go to God, you only go to your ancestors or whatever, when you have a particular problem and then you exchange something. You say, oh God of the sea, I will go into the sea and I'll give you 10,000 offerings and then you will bestow a blessing on my travels. Or when you're really desperate, you really cross to a different country and you hear, okay, maybe the God of Italy or the God of uh, Rome, they would be more powerful than my God and therefore, you know. So you went on these pilgrimages, you went to meet with these gods only when you're snubbed, only when you're in trouble, only when you want to alleviate yourselves out of suffering. You have an exchange relationship, you have a consumer relationship, you don't have a personal relationship. And by the way, we see that today. Do you go to church, do you pray, only when you feel in trouble? And we go to church a couple of times, and then if it doesn't work out for you, you stop going? Or you go to church, and then once the problem is solved, you don't feel the need anymore? You have a consumer relationship with God. It's not a real relationship. I'm sorry. Or you, you just find yourself craving the Word of God. You know, you, don't, you can't say to your wife, right, we had a date last week, why do I have to go on a date this week? We don't say to our kids, you know, we had lunch Sunday last week, so maybe this week I don't need that. We, can't, we don't have the liberty to say that. Why? Because we're a relationship. But, you know, if you go to Rejuve downstairs, you know, you could go to Rejuve and buy a juice and then not come back for a couple of months and, you know, you just go there to, to get something that you want. Right? And if they, don't, they stop delivering, you go to Starbucks instead. Is that how we treat God? Do we realize the privilege that we have in knowing God? Do you, do you really commune with Him? Do you find yourself praying every night? Do you call God Father and realize that you have communion and access with Him? So first then, we have freedom of the knowledge of God. Second, we have freedom, and as I've mentioned this before, from our, our race and our ethnicity. And this is something, again, that is revolutionary because what Jesus is saying here is, as we have this in our original, you know, translated for us in our languages, we are reading this across the world on Sunday. Churches from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, they actually come to the Lord God and say, you are my father. No longer is God mixed up with a particular people, a particular place. No longer do you need to be a Jew 
to worship the true God. You see, back then, if you wanted to worship Yahweh in the Old Covenant, you had to become Jewish too. You had to come in uh, and really follow all the Jewish customs. In other words, religion, again, was part of the culture. You can't just have a voluntary faith and say, you know, I'm just going to worship God from Greece. No, you have to come to Israel. You have to go. You have to go on a pilgrimage. You still have to do all those things. You need to convert yourself, not just religiously, also ethnically. But here what Jesus is saying is, he's fulfilling here what he already said in John 4, 24, to an outsider, a Samaritan woman. What do you say? There will come a time where you will no longer worship in the temple of Jerusalem, but you will worship in spirit and in truth. You hear that? You're all Indonesians here, or some of you are, sorry. Some of you are Chinese Indonesian. Some of you are native Indonesian. Some of you are Caucasians. Some of you are from different, all sorts of different countries are represented, even in this room. And if you are someone else in Australia are going to meet and worship. And LA and so forth, right? That's amazing. This is revolutionary, groundbreaking here. Larry Hurtado actually argued that in the second century, he's a historian at Edinburgh Uni, and he actually argued that this is the first time where we have something called a voluntary faith. You know, you go to a census these days, or you're about to come into immigration, and sometimes they might ask you, uh, what race are you? Are you Caucasian, Asian? You know, what, what are you? And then there's a separate category. What religion do you belong to? There's Buddhist, Islam, Christianity, Jewish, you know, whatever. And the fact that we even have a distinction between ethnicity and religion is a cultural inheritance of Christianity. Because now we say that even, I can't assume what you believe in just by looking at your, the color of your skin. I can't assume that anymore. So here's what Larry Hurtado said about Christians um, in the second century. See, pagan converts have a radically new religious identity. But I repeat, they have not become Jews. Their baptism did not make them members of the Jewish people or nation. They remain Gentiles. In the case of the Thessalonian converts, they remain Greeks. But in their religious life, notice the distinction, they have become a different kind of Gentiles. They have now be become obedient to the true God. To put it in more prosaic terms, early Christians took up a new kind of religious identity that uniquely was both exclusive and not related to their ethnicity. And then he says later on, Early Christian religious identity was distinctive in replacing all others for its devotees. It was an exclusive religious identity defined entirely, hear that, entirely by their standing in relation to the true God, and was not dependent on or even connected to their ethnicity. In fact, I contend that this distinctive early Christian group identity is perhaps the earliest attempt to articulate what moderns would recognize as a corporate religious identity that is distinguishable from, and not a corollary of, one's family, civic, or ethnic connection. You have free access to God. You commune with God anywhere. This is why it's a benefit for Jesus Christ to depart and send us the Holy Spirit. Because now, we could be in Indonesia in a shopping mall, worshiping God in this way. Now we have access to one God in prayer. Now, when it's 2 a.m. in the morning and you can't sleep, you know you have access to the true God. You're communing with Him. And thirdly, the Spirit, therefore, gives us the freedom from our sin. So He gives us the freedom to know God, gives us the freedom away from our ethnicity, 
gives us the freedom as well from our sin. You're no longer defined by your ethnicity and therefore you're no longer defined by your sin. That's what the Spirit gives us access to. Notice in, in 15, verse 15, he already says there, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Friends, you're no longer servants indebted to God. We're no longer slaves trying to pay off a guilty debt. In other words, if the Spirit really has all the authority of the Father and the Son, and He's declaring it to you, and you have access to the one God, free access, anyone could come in. We hear that? Anyone could come in. A lot of people, again, they say things like, Christianity is so exclusive. You know, I believe that spiritual people of every faith, they should be able to come to heaven too. They should be able to meet God too, right? They should end up in, in divine blessedness too. So why is Christianity so exclusive? All the good people from all the other religions, they should be able to have access to God. My instinct is to say to that, well, what about the bad people? Just the good people? That's way more exclusive. In fact, can you actually honestly say to yourself, I'm one of the good people? I'm one of the good people. Can you say that? Can you say... Can you honestly look at the mirror and say to yourself, I have access to God because I'm one of the good and faithful people in one of the major religions? I hope not, friends, because if you are, you're still caught in self-deception. We are still caught in self-deception. All of these things that came to a head, you know, and ended the night. We just got engaged last week. And, um, okay, I didn't expect that, but... Um, but all of these things really um, came to a head, I think, in our, in our relationship because um, ethnicity, race, and um, faith, and, and sin, and all those sort of things. And um, part of the things that we first talked about was, was part of the things that, that really bothered us and our conscience and troubled us was the fact that her broader family is still um, our devotees of Islam. And so how, from the very first like date, first conversation was like, Okay, we'll talk about that some other time, but that's an issue. <laughs> that, that's a deep issue. So, you know, she's been a Christian for a couple years now, but part of the question was, how in the world do we disclose this to her mother, who is still a devotee of Islam? Like, how, how in the world do we do that? And she can't hide that anymore. Her family tried, tried to hide that in different ways, right? Because it's really difficult. It's, it, it creates tensions, right? And part of the reasoning of her broader family was, well, you were born this way. You're Indonesian. You bear our family name. Of course you're going to be Muslim. See, that's still part of the ancient culture of honor and shame, right? So that, they just assume that if you're born in a particular family, you'll stay this way, right? Faith is not a voluntary thing. Faith is something you inherit. So part of, the, part of the, our difficulty was, how do we do this? And um, we tried to reason it out. But finally, a couple of months ago, she met her mother over lunch. And... Uh, she finally told her, I'm a Christian. Huge difficult conversation occurred and took place. And, and part of that conversation was she had to tell her mom the gospel. Mom, I'm saved not because of good works. No possible way anyone could happen to that. And uh, I'm saved not because of good works. 
Not because I go to church. Not because I've been born in a good family. Not because I'm a righteous person. Mom, Christian, have the boldness to say this. We are evil. We're not any better than anyone else. We are sinners through and through. And God loved me even when he knew everything that I've ever done. Have the joy to both say that and be amazed. Because friends, God loved you enough. He had mercy on you and he died for your sins. Nothing else should matter. And uh, her response, which Ended shared with me, was something that was absolutely right. Because if you're gonna, if you're gonna reject Christianity, you reject Christianity for this reason. She literally said, her mother, sorry, literally said, "This is too good to be true." If this is the case, that means there's no difference between me and the murderer. If this was the case, that means there's no difference between my prayers, my my dressing up in modesty, my devotion, my fasting. You're telling me that a murderer could easily come into the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. We hear the good news, friends. You have access to the Father. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what kind of family you come from. Just drop the pride. Come into the light. Drop the dark. Come into the light. You don't have to, you don't have to pretend anymore. It's too good to be true. That's way too good to be true. So every Christian understands and realizes, tis mercy all, oh God, you have found out me, amazing love. How can that be that you, my God, should die for me? You see, you're no longer saying the murderer gets to get in. You're now saying I get to get in. That's the miracle. My goodness, that's the mercy. That's my source of joy. That's my identity. That's the God I know. That's the God that I love. You see, friends, third then. This is who the Spirit of God glorifies and points you to. This is who He points you to. Christ Jesus who died for your sin and is resurrected so that you can say, my righteousness is not what I own. My self-esteem is not what I own. My worth is not what I own. I can look at the Son and say, He is my righteousness and He alone. I had nothing to offer. I had nothing to offer. I had nothing to give. We hear that? Because friends... That objection, even though it's the best objection, it's way too good to be true. Yes, that does kill your pride, but consider this. It's not too good to be true because it was only good for you. It wasn't good for the sun, not for that hour. Grace is free for you, but grace was not free for him. Grace is costly grace. Grace is freely given, but someone else had to pay. Forgiveness is always weighty and costly because the one who forgives always has to pay the debt. Are you amazed? Friends, the Holy Spirit is not where you feel most comfort. The Holy Spirit is not where you feel most uh, earthly pleasures. The Holy Spirit is not where you, you fall into ecstatic experiences. The Holy Spirit is not where your family is. The Holy Spirit is wherever Christ is glorified. Do you long in your heart to really bear the image of God and say, my life is not about me and I'm here to image the Son of God? I am an image bearer of God, so let me glorify the Son. Where that is, where the Holy Spirit is. Amen. Let us pray.
Father, it's amazing that we have communion with the Father. Though you know our deepest darks, we no longer have to pretend. Naked and unashamed, we come to you just as our original parents, Adam and Eve. Naked and unashamed, we can come to you and say, look at all our deepest, not just flaws, but our deepest and most grievous sins. Coming empty-handed and saying, Lord, give me a new nature. Give me a cleansed heart. Give me a cleansed body. And in the Son of Jesus Christ, we have exactly that. And by the Holy Spirit, we come no longer in the dark, but in the light. Transfer from one kingdom to another. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.